Four years old to fourth grade, junior church, you are dismissed to walk over for junior church. Uh, real quick, we just wanted to say something. Um, on Mother's Day, we handed out these little decorative, smelly soaps. Um, we thought they were pretty and kind of elegant. They were handmade. And there was a lot of people who kept saying something like, so do they think all the moms are dirty or something? Um, that is not what we're saying, so please don't read into it. For Father's Day, by the way, we're handing out bags of jerky. Um, we are not saying anything about fathers either, okay? But don't be a jerk. Okay. Um, so, uh, guys, you can pick one of those up later on your way out. Um, isn't that better than soap? Yeah. Yeah. It's for the fathers, not the teenage boys. Uh, you're a boy. Okay. So, on Mother's Day, we looked at the nameless mother. Uh, who was found in Matthew 15, and through her actions and her faith, we saw some great lessons. And as I was trying to figure out Father's Day, um, I was told, why don't you just do a nameless father and, and kind of mirror that? So I, so I started looking into that. And, and many people have told me this. In fact, Dustin's one of them who said it. People have said that on Mother's Day, we hear sermons about how to honor and love and esteem and encourage our mothers. On Father's Day, we hear messages about how we need dads to step up, be stronger, and lead better. And we've got this dual thing, and then I started thinking about it, and I actually went and looked at all my Father's Day sermons. He's not in here, right? Dustin's, Dustin was right. That's what it is like. So um, instead of following that basic routine, I want to look at this nameless father found in Mark 9 just to see some lessons this father did right and what all of us can do and incorporate in our life. Now, as many people, as you grow, as your kids are growing, then you get them driving. And you see pictures on Facebook. They're like, stay off the road. My child has their permit or their license. And, and any time you come to an intersection, especially when I was training my boys, my daughter, how to drive, I'd be like, now watch the other people. It's dangerous. Other people may not be smart even though they're driving. And you don't know what they're going to do. And so there's dangerous intersections. And we'd watch and I'd say, now look, this one's the... There are lots of dangerous intersections. In fact, the most dangerous intersection in the USA is in ben, uh, ben Salem, Pennsylvania. It's right here. There, are, there were 144 crashes in the two-year study they had, which left 170 people either dead or injured. And I was like, that is a whole lot in one intersection in two years. So then I started thinking, where's the most dangerous intersection in Indiana? So I did a little research and found out it's the 38th Street and Union Road in Indianapolis, so we're safe. We're okay unless you're going that way. But whenever you're driving, there are dangerous intersections because you don't know what's going to happen. And just like driving, also in our life, there are dangerous intersections. An intersection is a place where a difficult decision has to be made and our faith and our actions are going to be tested. Um, if you've ever seen the book... Experiencing God by Dr. Henry Blackaby. I, I just tell you right now, it's a great workbook. You want to grow your faith? Do that workbook. It's, it's really good. Um, but in it, he calls that a crisis of belief. He says that when we get to an intersection, it takes two things for us to navigate through it safely. It takes faith and action. It takes both. A lot of times we want to lean on just one. 
I'm just going to act things out. That's all I need to do. And, and other people, all I, ha- I have faith. That's all I need. No, Scripture actually says you need faith and action. In the passage we're going to look at today of the nameless father, he brings his son to Jesus and we're going to see faith and action. This man's son has suffered since childhood, so we can assume he might be a bit older at this point. But because of his problems, he's still under his father's care. So in Mark chapter 9, verse 17, it says, A man in the crowd answered, Teacher, I brought you my son who is possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him into the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the Spirit, but they could not. So, right here, there's a lot of key things here about this father and this situation. So this father, he brings his son to the disciples, and they pray over him, expecting to be healed. And things don't go according to plan. If you back up in the passage, you'll see that this is right after the Mount of Transfiguration. Jesus has just given authority to them. They're going to have be able to preach and teach and and cast out demons and heal people. They pray over this boy, and nothing happens. Has that ever happened to you? You're praying for something, and nothing seems to happen. They prayed and laid hands on him, spoke the name of Jesus, but nothing changed. They're in this intersection. What do they do? And when we're faced with these kinds of dilemmas, our faith is definitely tested. But to add to this situation, though, back up to verse 14. When they returned, this is when Jesus and the three came down from the mountainside. They returned to the other disciples. They saw a large crowd surrounding them, and some teachers of religious law are arguing with them. So Jesus is just up on the mountaintop. He's transfigured in front of the three closest disciples, and they're having this really cool moment. They come down from the mountain, and here's the rest of the disciples in an argumentative debate with some religious leaders. If you don't think that religious people argue, then you didn't read Scripture. We obviously argue because we're people, and we think we know the right things. Here they are. They're arguing. Now, what are they arguing about? We don't know for sure what the argument is about, but I kind of can assume or imagine that the disciples, they were unable to heal this guy, this kid. And now these religious leaders who wanted to find any fault in Jesus and his followers are like, look here, you're, you're the follower of this guy and you can't heal this. This proves you're not from God. You can't do this, which means you don't represent the true God. I, I just kind of am imagining that's what's in there. Which means they're not only questioning the disciples, but they're questioning Jesus. This happens to us today. I really think about it. People try to question Christians about their faith. And really what they're trying to do is justify why believing against Jesus is okay. Why their lifestyle without God is fine. And keep in mind the whole scene here. Religious leaders are arguing with disciples. A crowd of people wanting to come up to Jesus. The religious people who should have known better are arguing while the people cannot come to Jesus. And in the midst of all that, a father is trying to bring his son to Jesus for healing. Now let's look at the scene. Jesus' response 
to what is happening to this story is really directed at the disciples, not the boy who needed healing. But Jesus' words seem to be directed at everybody, including us. Mark uh, 9.19, you unbelieving generation. Aren't those the words you want to hear from Jesus? Jesus replied, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. You know what we need to hear in that? The father voice. You did what? Get over here. It's kind of like the mom voice, but with testosterone. Okay? That's really the only difference. Okay? It seems to me dealing with this matter, the disciples made the same mistake that we do today. We assume we can do the work of God on our power, on our strength and knowledge. They were using the right words, almost like a magic formula. They placed their hands on the young boy like they've done before, like they've seen Jesus do. They followed the examples, but something was missing here. There was no power. Same words, same actions, but no result. And how many times do we have this in our own lives? We're doing what it says in the Bible. We're doing what we've heard from the minister. We're doing what it says in church. And yet there's nothing. Like there's no power. If there is no prayer, if there is no prayer, and a prayer is not God give me, it is a God show me, lead me, I'm yours. That's the real prayer. Not give me this, but you tell me what to do. And if there is no ongoing relationship with Christ through that prayer, then there is no deliverance from those things that are holding us back. We can, I, I've said this before, but I, I got kind of yelled at from a guy at a previous church. and Because when I ended some of my prayers, I would say, we thank you, Lord, amen. I did not say the phrase, in Jesus' name. And therefore, according to this man, they were not valid prayers. Because I didn't say the magic words he was used to saying as he was growing up. And so my first thing that I told him is, book, chapter, verse. Or to say, I have to say those words. Now, I need to pray through the name of Jesus in faith, in relationship. But I can say the words and not mean them. And that's the thing here. These guys, these disciples were saying the words, but they were relying on themselves. We can still be waiting for an answer if we're relying on our own power. And it's this simple. Without faith, you cannot experience God's power. You can't. You can see it maybe through someone else, but you can't experience it until you have faith in Him. Because that power doesn't belong to us. It doesn't come from within us. It comes from God alone. We are vessels for His power that flow through us and influence others. And here's a hard lesson for many of us to learn. Whenever Christ comes to do His work, God is never in a hurry. I like to get things done and move on to something else. But God is never in a hurry. We may be very driven, but God is not. And this is frustrating. Sometimes I'm like, God, just get us there. 
Let's get it done and move on. We pray and God God answers five years later. Our timing is not the same. There was one guy who uh, had a conversation with God and he said, God, what is a million years to you? God says, just like a minute. Oh, okay. What is a million dollars to you, God? Well, it's like a penny. Okay, God, can I have a penny? Sure, just a minute. We're in a hurry. We want to get things done, and yet God doesn't seem to do that. And in our increasing, fast-paced generations, instant breakfast, microwaves, drive-thrus, emails, um, instant text messaging, God doesn't go on that speed, but yet He is focused on eternity. And to catch up with God, oftentimes we need to slow down. I read a study, and, and you can read this whole study if you wanted to, but um, men will gauge their pace based on the woman they're walking with. Now, if they love her, they will slow down and match her. If they don't love her, they keep going at their own speed. Ladies, go for a walk with your husband today. See what happens, right? Guys, I'm giving you a clue, a hint there. But, so I'm walking, and... Casey and I are almost the same height, but we take different strides, so I slow down to match her pace. This works great until Austin is walking with us. Six foot five, and his strides are like a giraffe. And so we're walking, so we're like, hey, slow down. He's like, I am going slow, and he's ten paces ahead. We're like, hey, slow down, and he's in the next aisle of the store already. He... He's so much quicker, and we want him to slow down to join us. And I think that's what God is doing to us so many times. Like, hey, hey, slow down and come here. Slow down and come join me here. He is never in a hurry because he is full of confidence. He knows what's going on. He knows his purposes are going to be accomplished. And for me, I have to learn to make his mind, my mind. I have to slow my steps to match his. And so Jesus, that's what he's doing here. He says, bring the boy to me. Now go to verse 20. So they brought him. When the spirit saw Jesus, he immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. He fell to the ground and rolled around foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has this been going? How long has this been like this? From childhood, he answered. It's often thrown him into the fire or water to kill him, but if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. Bring the boy to me. Instantly, I'm like, okay, he's going to heal him. We expect things to get better. The boy is brought to him. He's brought to Jesus. And instead, it gets worse for this boy. He gets close to Jesus, and the demon inside says, "Uh uh-oh, here's the big guy. And so he starts throwing him in this convulsions. We sometimes mislead people by telling them, All you need to do is come to Jesus and it's going to be great. You just get close to him and you're going to feel so much better. Well, this little boy didn't, or this boy didn't. In fact, he got a little worse because of what was inside him. Fact is, many people may come to find more difficulties the closer they get to Jesus because of friends and family who will not understand and berate them for it. It could bring tension to your job because now you have biblical standards that that you live by and they go against what your boss may be telling you to do. 
You may think you're immune from illnesses and tragedy and troubles, but instead it seems like they get worse and you don't understand. Our faith collides with the questions and some people choose to walk away from that intersection empty. This boy is brought to Jesus. Imagine this, this guy. He brings him to the disciples. They can't do anything. Now he goes to Jesus. This boy falls down in front of Jesus, foaming and all that. And this is what Jesus does. How many of you have been to the ER before? Okay, so you get to the ER and you're hurt. Okay, I'm going to tell a little story about myself. This is, this is embarrassing. I didn't write it down because I didn't want to say it, and now i got to say it. So I started having these heart pains, or chest pains right here. I was not happy. And they kept getting worse, and so I, call, I sent a message to my doctor, and the, the message back was, go to the ER now. All right, it might be serious. So I waited a half hour and then told my wife. I, I did. And she's like, what? I said, let's get our work done. And then she's like, no, we're leaving now. So we get there, and typically in an ER response, you know what you do? You get there and you fill out papers, and then they ask you a bunch of questions. Have you done this? Have you done this? Okay, have you done Just fix me. Okay, I came here not for a quiz. Fix me. You ever experienced that? They keep asking questions. Now, I, just, for you, just so you know, it wasn't my heart. I had pulled a muscle in my chest, and that made me think I was having a heart attack. So, I was a baby. But I wanted to be fixed. And this, this guy, he brings his son to Jesus. The boy falls down, and Jesus goes, How long has this been going on? Are you kidding me? Fix him. Can't you see this eagerness of his father and the panic of him? And God doesn't call us to live a life that is driven all the time. He doesn't call us to be hurried, always rushing, always constant. That's not God's way. We find the word hurry or hurried in the original Greek four times in scriptures. I had to look those up. Four times in the gospel. Um, only one of those times King Herod said to the daughter of Herodias, Ask for anything and I'll give it to you. She ran to him and hurriedly said, I want you to give me right now the head of John the Baptist. So there's a thing. Don't hurry in that sense. The other three times are when Mary learned she would have a child, that she was to name Jesus. She learned the same day that Elizabeth, her cousin, was going to have a baby. So she hurried to go see this news. So one was bad. Three were okay. But it didn't help her faith right at that moment. After the... Um, Oh, sorry, that was one. With two, the shepherds learned that Jesus was about to be born. They hurried to Bethlehem. And then, here's the part, once they knew the message, they slowly told everybody. And the last one, after the death and burial of Jesus, the woman went to the tomb, realizing he had risen. They left the tomb, and Peter and John hurried to go see, and then they walked back. It's clear the only time we hurry according to Scripture, is to get to Jesus or to spread His message. Not for our will, our stuff needing done. And that's where I fault so many times. God, I want this done, and I'm going to get things done, so all you have to do is put that little stamp of approval on it, and we can move on. In April 1988, the Evening News reported this photo, um, photographer who was a skydiver. This is true, and, and 
I, I didn't want to show pictures because of what happened. There's a whole group, there's a numerous skydivers, they were filming as they were jumping out and they were doing all these motions and I've always wanted to skydive. I just think that's neat and so many people say I'm dumb for that. But to free fall and see all that and know this. Well, this photographer, he was filming it all, going in and through them as they were making the formations. As they fell, they started opening their chutes. And the film, which was live on telecast, was final skydiver went to open his chute and the screen started going in berserk. It started flipping around and everything, and the announcer reported that the cameraman had fallen to his death, having jumped out of the plane without his parachute. He was in such a hurry and eagerness that he just jumped out, filmed everything, and while it was live, it started spinning around because he realized in his haste, in his hurriedness, Until that point, the jump seemed very exciting and fun. It was all going according to plan. But tragically, he acted with thoughtlessness and haste, which led to deadly foolishness. Nothing could save him. All the other people were well above him at this point. His faith was in a parachute that was still sitting on the plane. And there are those of us here today who are caught up in living the excitement of this life. But it's not going to save you. Because the shoot, the things that saves you, is Jesus. And you jumped into life without him. Don't reach for him before it's too late. This father says to Jesus, Jesus, uh, how long has this been going on? He says, if you can do anything, take pity on us. This was the part of the message that really hit me hard today. Have you ever talked to God and said, if? If you can help me, God. If you can fix my relationship. If you can show me. If you can heal me. If you can do this. If. So many times we ask God, if. Thinking about that, I just want to shout at myself and say, are you kidding? If God can help, is a fire truck red? Is water wet? Does the sun shine? Of course God can help us. Look at verse 23. If you can, Jesus replied, everything is possible for one who believes. Of course I can, but it has nothing to do with it. It has to do with your faith, he's saying. Everything is possible for the one who believes, who has faith. Now listen to this next reply. The Father went from, if you can. The next line gives great insight into this godly Father. Verse 23 and 24. If you can, Jesus said, everything's possible for the one who believes. Immediately, the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. At first, that sounds like, wait a minute, he just contradicted himself. But think about this. Have you ever felt this way that part of you believes, but part of you still has doubts? Part of you says yes to God, but part of you says, I'm not sure. And when we come to this intersection of faith and action, a very dangerous place where we either can transfer into a greater relationship with God, or we can turn and leave God altogether. We have to decide if it's going to be 
faith and Christ helping me believe more? Or am I going to walk my own way? And many people walk away. They say, I just have too many questions about God and my faith and about Bible. It's a dangerous intersection, but it is a divine intersection. Because this is how we grow. And, and we need to understand this. A faith that is never questioned is not worth having. If you have never questioned your faith, and I don't mean is it real, I mean why do I believe this? What is the foundations of this? What is the meat? What is the truth? What is the, the building blocks of this? If you've never questioned it, then I'm going to say this. It's probably a shallow faith. My, my daughter believed in me when she'd jump in the pool. You know why? Because I told her to. And then as she got older, she's like, Dad, can you still catch me? No. Please don't jump on me anymore. She started questioning, did her faith in me change? No. She knew I wanted to. She just knew she was five foot nine at the time, and I was old. A faith that is never questioned is not worth it. Why do you believe in Jesus? If you say, well, I've always believed. That's not true. Well, I was raised this way. Why? Why do you believe in Jesus? Why have you given your life to God? We all need to be able to answer these questions because Scripture actually says you need to be ready to answer these questions in season and out to give hope for your salvation, to share that. And the key is found in verse 24. Listen to what this boy fathers. I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. And here's the really cool part about this. Is it really possible to have belief in God and unbelief and exist at the same time? Can we have faith in God and doubts at the same time? And what is this father doing? He is living that right in front of Jesus. I do believe, but I need help overcoming the rest of my unbelief. God looks at the heart. And if we have doubts and we generally do not understand, God will help us. He brings us to the understanding of Him. But if we're stubborn, driven, and we think it's all about what we can do, our hearts become cold and hardened and we fall away. To be like this, Father, we must be humble. We must be humble. Humble means that you think of others first, that you don't elevate yourself. And the good news here is that when we face up to our doubts, when we allow faith and fear to intersect, it's when we actually give God room to do only what He can do. Notice what Jesus doesn't say here. Jesus, He did say, so how long has this been going on? And then He's like, if, if I can help? He didn't say, okay, come back to me when you have more faith. He didn't say, you don't have enough faith, so I'll wait. He didn't say, once your faith hits a certain level, then I can heal your son. No. He healed him. He didn't wait till this father to measure up because this father knelt down and already showed his real faith. Two things are important like this. To be this father, we must be honest about your doubts. 
if you try to always act like you don't have any doubts, you're 100% guaranteed on God, wow, you should have helped write the Bible. Because, man, that's amazing. I have a fallen brain, sinful DNA, that keeps causing me to doubt. And I have to overcome that with Christ. But here's the great thing. God is big enough, smart enough, and confident enough to deal with our doubts when we come to Him in love and in faith. When you try to cover up your doubts, you are lying. I don't have any doubts. Liar. I'm completely confident. Liar. And how many times do we do that? Instead, let's be like this Father. Be honest with our doubts. He said, I do believe, but help me in those areas where I have my doubts. To be like this Father, we must do the one thing dads hate to do. Ask for help. This Father has taken this boy to numerous people. He's gone to doctors, I'm sure. He might have gone to other so-called healers. He went to the disciples, and he didn't stop. He kept asking for help. Fathers, we need to ask for help. Having my arm surgery has made me ask for help. You know, I hate that. I have to ask my wife to carry groceries in. That's the man's job. You know, i got to carry 15 bags in each arm. And now I can carry bread and chips. But we need to ask for help. We need to be honest about our doubts and ask for help. This not only allows God to move in a mighty way in our life, but it also allows others to see the benefit of God moving in us. If I am constantly trying to be big and bad and strong, I never show where God is bigger and stronger. Verse 25 and following. When Jesus saw the crowd was returning to the scene, he rebuked the impure spirit. You deaf and mute spirit, he said, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. The spirit shrieked, convulsed him violently and came out. The boy looked so much like a corpse that many said he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him to his feet and he stood up. There's no doubt at this moment that this boy was healed by Jesus. But this boy couldn't come to Jesus on his own. There was barriers Inside and outside, this father had to come to a dangerous intersection of life, and he chose to stand in front of the whole crowd and ask for help. He chose to humble himself and say, I don't have enough power and knowledge to help my son. He kept asking, and he even said, God, help me in my doubts. He chose to be a humble, honest man, and that's a godly man right there. One that any of us and all of us should try to emulate. God has given us the gift of fathers. And just like I said on Mother's Day, not everybody's had a good earthly father. There's nothing I can say that's going to fix that. Not all of us have had good examples. But that doesn't mean we can't stop and celebrate Honor the men who have stood up to protect, to guide, to provide, and encourage you, whether they were your dad, your uncle, or just some neighbor, or a godly man in the church. We should take time to honor these men, to thank them that they stood up to fulfill a role of a father figure, and thank them for being like the father in this passage. Being a dad 
is a lot different than a mom. I'm not going to try and equate them. I don't have what it takes to be a mom. I don't have the heart. I don't have the compassion or the patience. God has called men to do a different task. And it's not worse. It's not. It's just totally different. And too many times, I know I said I wasn't going to do it, but I'm going to anyway. Too many times, men, we let somebody else take the role. I don't know if it's fear. I don't know what it is. But we let somebody else take it. Our society is full of not men. Especially not godly men. And in this room, I see so many godly men. This is what we are meant to be. This is what this godly father in this scripture was. And I want to thank you for standing up for putting yourself on the line, for taking the hits and the blows from this world to protect your family so that they can be better. That is honorable. And I thank you for it. I've been encouraged by many of you more than you know. Even some who are younger than me. Just awed at this. And so for the rest of you, you join me in standing up and not just honoring them but encouraging others to follow in those footsteps we did something on Mother's Day and I was told don't do it on Father's Day but we're doing it so will you get near a father a man, a godly person who's influenced you and would you take time to pray over that person to thank God for them, to encourage them, to bless and protect them. Take some time, move to a father right now, and then I'll close in prayer. God in heaven, the perfect, wonderful example of a father. First, I thank you for always being there for us, for showcasing what it means to truly protect and honor and train and love. God, right now, I just ask a blessing on all these men and just seeing the hearts of so many people just wrap around these godly men. Thank you for them. And Lord, as Scripture says, we want to honor them because of what your Scripture teaches and that they follow. Help us, God, to not just do this on a one day, but a consistent day. Lord, thank you for being the true Father to us, for encouraging us, loving us, and leading us 
not just in the times of good, but especially in the times of bad, leading us right to the foot of the cross so that we could be in a perfect, wonderful relationship with you. Thank you, God, for being our dad, for loving us even though we were unlovable. As we join in song again, we want to lift up how much you mean to us. And in Jesus we pray this. Amen. Let's stand and